Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection is a big deal. It's a big deal in the Christian church. It's a big deal in popular culture. It doesn't matter where you go, where you're looking, what you're watching, you'll find resurrection somewhere. If it's in Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, even the SpongeBob SquarePants movie has a resurrection at the end, right? right? Yeah, yeah, like I'm the only one who's seen the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Stop pretending. Stop pretending out there. Everywhere you go, there is resurrection. Like, take Doctor Who. They, they just cheat constantly. If you've ever watched Doctor Who, that's their whole game. It's like, ah, oh, this guy's getting tired. Let's kill him off and resurrect him as a new person. But same character. Oh, genius. And resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith, the absolute heart of the Christian faith. Because what Christians declare and believe is that Jesus Christ died and rose again, physically resurrected, conquering the grave. A man who was dead becomes alive. Now that's a big statement, and I'm going to use that phrase a lot. A dead person came to life today. And the reason I want to do that is I actually want to spend a little bit of time not talking about Easter, because I'm sure you know about Easter. I'm sure you've heard the Easter story. I'm sure somewhere along the line you're familiar with some part of it, even if the kids telling it on the video was the first time you've ever heard it. What I want to talk about is why you can trust the resurrection of Jesus. So for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I just want to dig into a few of the definitive proofs that we have for the physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Now, this is a little different for what we normally do at Encounter Church, but this is something I think is important for us this morning. If you're a Christian already, my prayer is that this is helpful for you, that it helps build you up in your faith. But if you're not a Christian yet, and I know there'd be many people in this room who aren't, you're so welcome here, first of all. You do not have to believe to belong as part of this community, right? This is just part of who we are, part of our foundation is it doesn't matter where you come from, what you believe, you are welcome here. If you're a skeptic, agnostic, atheist, spiritual but not religious, take your choice. You are welcome here. And what I hope is not to like bowl you over with arguments. I hope just to plant some seeds in your mind for you to think about and consider the objective reality of the resurrection from the grave. Big statements. I'm going to back that up. What I do need you to do, though, is to go with me on three really quick points. I'm not trying to gloss over these. We just don't have time to talk about them. They're big points, but they're historically verifiable. So the three points are going to be behind me. And this, the first one is this. The contemporary scholarship affirms that the New Testament is a credible historical document. I'm not going to try and prove that. I don't have time. I put this up here so that if you'd like to take a photo and you'd like to check this out for yourself, I encourage you to do that because the majority of scholars, whether Christian or otherwise, will agree with these statements. Jesus, as a human being, is a credible historical figure and the crucifixion is a credible historical event. I need you just to give me uh, like a pass for these three things. We do not have the time. If you want to eat lunch today, we do not have the time to unpack them. Is that Okay. All right, I'm going to move past those. But again, I really urge you, if you have questions, screenshot it, have a look, take a photo and research it for yourself. Easily verifiable. What I want to do here is, is present three main arguments as to why the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is credible. The physical resurrection of Jesus is credible. And I want to tell you that if it isn't credible, 
And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then everything we're doing here is a, is a bit of a waste of time. Like, you know, the coffee's good. But apart from that, Christianity is a work of fiction if Jesus didn't rise physically from the grave. So let's dig into that. Let's dig into that. Three key proofs. The first one is this. Bear in mind what I said, these three things. You've got to bear these three things in mind, okay? The first proof is this, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Now, the empty tomb is kind of a given. It's the first and most obvious reason to trust in the reincarnation of Jesus. The re, the, well, not reincarnation, but resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Now I'm getting all, all Hindu on you here. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave. If the tomb is empty and there was a body in the tomb and the body is not in the tomb and walking around, logically, Jesus is resurrected, right? Let's look at whether this is true. The first thing we can look at is proving he was buried in the first place. Some people have arguments about this, but the first disciples believed that Jesus was buried. Now, the first disciples are the ones that wrote the Gospels, the main sources of information in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four different authors writing their versions of the exact same series of events. Many of the things we read are in all four of these Gospels. Some of them are not in all four. The more you find them in, the more historians, not Christians, historians, find that credible. So that, that makes sense, right? The more times you see something, the more credible it is. So the first disciples believed that Jesus was buried, and they created a creed that involved that. Now, that's a creed is just a saying that says, this is what we believe. And this creed was partially written down in a book called 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll just pop it up here on the screen behind me. This is, this is the creed that they wrote. Paul says that I passed on to you, the Corinthian church, as most important what I also received. Here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Those three things, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried, rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. This was the creed that the first disciples passed down one to another. On its own, nowhere near enough proof. Here's where it starts to get helpful. Scholars believe that this creed was written in about 32 AD. It was created, sorry, not written. This letter was written in the 50s, 50 AD, thereabouts. But the creed was written about 20 years earlier, and they reckon it was about 32 AD. This is why this is important. This was in, within a year or two of the death of Jesus. The closer you are to the event happening, the more credibility it has. Uh, for argument's sake, most other texts in that time, you'll find them 150 is the next closest period of time, 150 years between when something was occurring and when it was written. Compare this to two years. Two years. The New Testament is credible. But I'm not, anyway, I'm not talking about that. I've got to keep going. Don't let me get distracted. This is a belief system that's created too early to be corrupted. We know this creed wasn't invented by people later. Why? Because if they'd made it up... They were telling it to other people who were there seeing the same events, and they would have just gone, well, that's not what we said happened. Do you know what I mean? Like if somebody said, hey, uh, this is the creed, uh, because these things are true, yep, we don't deny it, and they were talking about it in 32 AD, everyone who was present for this is still alive, and they would just tell them, well, that's not true. Jesus didn't get raised from the dead. Or they would just refute it automatically. When the eyewitnesses are still alive... You can't make stuff up because people will disagree with you. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. So moving quickly on from that, 
And it's too early to be turned into mythological legend either, but I can't get into that. We don't have enough time. Backing this up, like, honestly, I've, like, blacked out half my message. I'm like, don't have time, don't have time, don't have time. Come, come and see me later. So backing this all up, back, we're still on the burial of Jesus. The disciples clearly believed Jesus was buried. Backing this all up is an account that all the gospel accounts have, all four of them, about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. After the death of Jesus, he comes to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and says, can I have the body? I want to bury it in a tomb. On its own, we don't think anything of that. Here's where this gets a bit sketchy. The Sanhedrin were the people that condemned Jesus to death. If the disciples wanted to make this up as a work of fiction, they could have come up with literally anybody else to make it seem more believable. Why would somebody who was on the ruling council that condemned Jesus to death give away a tomb for him? Well, in Luke's gospel, Luke is at pains to say Joseph of Arimathea was not present at the council when they condemned Jesus to death. Joseph was a follower of Jesus. And so even though he's on the ruling council and it seems totally at odds to put him in a tomb, that's what we see in all the Gospels. Again, the more times it is written, the more credible it is historically. Here's the other thing. Because he's on the ruling council, that makes him, relatively speaking, famous. People would recognize him, which means if you put a name in like that, people would read it and go, I know who that is. I'm going to go and ask him if it's true. This isn't just somebody on the street. This is somebody you can go to and verify. So these two reasons are two of the main reasons that New Testament scholars and historians view the burial of Jesus, just the burial, to be credible. Let's keep moving onto the empty tomb itself. I know, this is a little academic this morning. Just stay with me. You with me? You're staying awake? There's coffee and barbecue afterwards. The empty tomb itself. Let's talk about robbery. Could the empty tomb have been robbed by thieves? Well, no one considers this a credible argument historically because there are only two things in the empty tomb. The body of Jesus, well, there was nothing in the empty tomb, but there's only two things in the tomb originally. The body of Jesus and the garments he was wearing. The body of Jesus had no physical value to somebody who was just robbing for money. The garments, however were uh, burial garments that were created especially. They were made out of a special linen. They were quite valuable. But when they go to the empty tomb, all the reports say the clothes were still there and the body was gone. If it was robbers, it would have been the other way around. And you go, okay, sure. Ordinary robbers, no. What about the Sanhedrin? You just talked about them. The Jewish ruling council, couldn't they have taken Jesus' body away so that people couldn't claim he was resurrected? Maybe, but they didn't. How do I know this? Because the disciples went around saying, Jesus is risen from the grave. And the Sanhedrin, they hated that. They were against it. What would they have done if they'd heard this and had Jesus' body? They would have brought out the body. They would have said, here's the body. There you go. Now stop talking about it. But they didn't because they didn't steal it. And you might go, okay, well, what about the disciples? The disciples could have robbed the grave. The disciples didn't steal the corpse. Here's a few reasons. Number one, they would have had to get past the Roman guards. Number two, they would have had to roll the stone away. To roll that, it goes back slightly downhill to roll in and slightly uphill to roll away. They reckon it took three strong men. So this is behind Roman guards. So you have to get past them, stand in front of the tomb, then roll that away for three strong men. And then they would have to collectively decide to lie to the world, all of them, hundreds of them, 
with the exact same story. And then they'd have to be willing to die for that claim. It doesn't make any sense. The disciples didn't rob the tomb either. Now, when you add this to the fact that when Jews in the first century, all the Jewish people that are right, all these authors of these letters are Jewish people. All of them, when they talked about resurrection, if they believed in it, or even if they didn't, they were talking about a physical sense. They weren't speaking about it in a figurative idea or as a spiritual sort of hallucination or experience. For Jewish people, when they use the word resurrection, they're talking about something physical. So for all of these people, we know that's what they're trying to communicate. This is how we can trust some of the empty tomb. So the tomb is seen to be open. And the female disciples, they witness it. And they run to tell the others, Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome. And this is where we go, great. Well, here's our first proof that this is ridiculous. Of course, the female disciples will say that Jesus rose from the grave. They're his disciples. That's why the evangelists wrote it in the Gospels, so that we would trust them. But guess what? We don't trust them because they're already his disciples. Here's the thing. In first century Palestine, women had no credibility as witnesses. None. Did you know that in first century Palestine, if a woman viewed a crime happening, she was not allowed to be called upon for testimony because it was not counted as credible? They're not very woke, okay? But this is just the reality of first century Palestine. Again, I don't approve of that. Just to be clear, a counter church does not stand for this. But in first century Palestine, that's what it was like. So why did they bother putting that in the New Testament? Surely, surely, if they wanted it to be credible, they would have gone back to their mate Joseph of Arimathea and gone, oh, here's a public person, someone who's a man, someone who's respectable. Let's put him in front and let him give the testimony. But they don't. And the only logical answer is it's because the women were actually the ones who got there first. They were actually the ones who saw the empty tomb first and saw this angelic vision and ran to tell the disciples. Here's one one counter-argument from the first century philosopher Celsus. He was an antagonist towards Christianity, and he didn't believe it. And he said this, one of the reasons I can't trust Christianity, one clear reason it's not true, again, first century, was because the first witnesses were women. and, And please be clear, I am quoting Celsus here. And we all know that women are hysterical. If you're familiar with the phrase, on the wrong side of history, let me introduce you to my friend Celsus. He got here a long time before you. That was the prevailing attitude. If the gospel writers wanted it to be credible, they would have picked somebody else. If they were writing a work of fiction, they would have chosen other people, but they weren't, so they didn't. You can trust it. Surprising as it may seem, the tomb having a body go in and no body come out is the only plausible and credible explanation. Point two, proof number two, eyewitness testimonies. We've looked at the empty tomb. Now we're going to look at eyewitness testimonies. Now, one question we should all ask ourselves when trying to prove anything is who was actually there? Like, you know, the classic schoolyard gossip. He said about her, about them, but they got it from them. And, you know, there's that sort of Chinese whispers chain that goes on. When we're trying to prove something, what do we do? We try and get back to the source. I remember writing assignments throughout uni, did a shocking job of it multiple times. And again and again, my lecturers would go, you're using second sources. You're using second sources. You're using second sources. They wanted me to find the original source. Why? Because it's more credible. So that's why the eyewitnesses matter. 
We've already talked about how the first witnesses were a group of women who had an angelic visitation about as unlikely as any witness could get. Now, let's go back quickly to that creed we talked about from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Then he, uh, most of them are still alive, Paul says, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he also appeared to me. Paul is offering us here a nice, efficient dot point list of credible eyewitnesses. Paul has a legal background, so he's like, let me just check mark all these credible witnesses for you. And he, remember, he's writing this in enough time after the death of Jesus to go, hey, if you want to find out whether it's true, go and talk to them. That's why he says some of them have fallen asleep, which is you know, a really gentle way of saying they've died. But most of them are still alive. He's saying, go talk to them. Don't take my word for it. Ask them for yourself. That's how we can trust what Paul's writing here. He's Paul, now, most of them are people who already believed in Jesus. Maybe not heaps credible. But we are talking about nine different physical appearances by Jesus after his death to more than 520 different people. Have you ever tried to keep a lie under control? Like, any politicians in the room? No, no, no. Uh, lawyers? No, no. I know there's a lawyer in the room. <laughs> if you've ever tried to keep a lie under control, like three people maximum. Really, it's two people. You've got two people to try and manage a story, and as soon as a third person comes in, there's a variable. Uh, it's just too much. The idea that more than 520 people lied about the same thing doesn't add up. I'm going to tell you some more about why. More than that, he gave us names, clear names of these people. So we see these nine different moments when people had an encounter with the physical, resurrected Jesus after his death. And these come written by at least five, at least five different authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, the Apostle Paul. Yet they still bear each other up. They witness to each other. All these writers writing in different places to different people bear witness to one another, even though they're writing from different places. Now this physical part, however, is still important. In many of these stories, they take pains to talk about how Jesus is physically present, not just a ghost. He's physically present. They talk about touching his side, putting their head, Thomas puts his hand in his wounds. They talk about Jesus eating fish. They talk about Jesus breaking bread. They talk about Jesus walking along a road with them. They talk about embracing Jesus. All these different stories are very clear, like they're taking great pains to say, this is not a ghost experience. The Jewish people were familiar with those kind of experiences. That's not what this was. They're taking real pains about that. Now, going back to this ghost experience idea, one counter-argument could be is that it's all a hallucination. It's all a hallucination. They just had this mass hallucination at nine or more different times with more than 500 different people. Even as I say that sentence, it doesn't sound likely, but let's just push on with it for a second. The thing is, that's not how hallucinations work. It is possible to have a mass hallucination. Let's say there's a gas leak. Again, they didn't have natural gas just kind of piped into their homes in first century Palestine, but let's say they did, and there was a gas leak, and they all had a mass hallucination. Here's the thing. If they do that, they hallucinate about different things. They have 500 different hallucinations. There's no collective mind where they all hallucinate the same thing together. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how a hallucination works. If you've ever been under general anesthetic, you know what I'm talking about. 
That's not how it works. Here's another counter-argument. It was groupthink. It was groupthink. You get a group of people like this in here. You get some handsome, persuasive speaker up the front, <laughs> just for example, and they, and they charismatically give you this idea and it seeps into your bones and you go, oh, yeah, 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 this is it. Because I'm sitting here and these other people around me think it's true. I'm beginning to think it's true. Well, that's all right. But some of you here right now are, are, are totally disbelieving what I'm saying and that kind of proves my point. Groupthink doesn't work on skeptics. If you don't want to believe, you're not going to believe. And the first disciples had some skeptics in it. Peter was as dumb as they come. He was so hard-headed. I, I, like, honestly, I relate to Peter. I'm not trying to make fun of Peter, but he was so hard-headed. James, the guy who ended up being the head of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, in all of the Gospels, before the resurrection from the dead, James is depicted as kind of an antagonist, somebody who's like, bro, I grew up with you, okay? You're not that special. Stop pretending to be the Messiah. Yet somehow, after the death and resurrection, something happens to James. He says, my brother was the Messiah. If you've got a sibling, I want you to imagine how much of a stretch that would be for you. <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Oh, don't look at them. That's mean. <laughs> That's mean. Group think doesn't work on skeptics. The proof is you're here not necessarily believing me right now. Okay? So it's pretty clear. There were many eyewitnesses who genuinely believed Jesus was raised from the dead and physically appeared with them. The eyewitness testimonies are credible proof of the resurrection, as crazy as that seems. Let me go to the third one, the birth of the church, what we might call proof by actions. See, the birth of the church is proof because the church started from a bunch of disciples who on that first Easter Saturday, the Sabbath day after the death of Jesus, the death of the man they had followed for three years, the man who had said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again from the grave. This guy goes and he dies, but he says he's going to raise from the grave. And so you think the disciples are like, I'll be at the grave Easter morning, see you there. You know where they were? Literally anywhere else because they didn't believe Jesus had risen from the grave. They thought it was over. They thought like so many messianic experiences over the years, and there, over the last hundred years before Jesus had turned up, had been dozens. They'd amassed a bunch of followers. The leader had died. The followers scatter. Because why would you stick around if the guy was still dead? It's not the Messiah then. He's just a charismatic leader. So these disciples on Easter Saturday didn't even bother to go to the tomb. Only the women had the guts to actually go down there to minister to Jesus' dead body. But they thought they were ministering to a dead body. They thought they were anointing the body with spices to make it smell nice, to anoint it as an act of honor. But when they got there, the stone was rolled away. Yet these disciples not only bounced back from their depression, not only believed in the physical resurrection, not only were transformed into passionate missionaries, they gave their lives to die for this mission. If you've ever found something worth giving your life for, you don't do it because it's meaningless. You only do it because it is deeply, deeply meaningful, because it is true. The rise of the early church is unique and surprising. The book of Acts shows us a group of frightened Jewish people who went from worshipping their God to worshipping after the death of Jesus, a man, Jesus himself, after the resurrection. The resurrection actually changed the structure of their belief system. 
They changed their worship day to Sunday. They were willing to be tortured and killed as his followers. Historians are baffled by this. But the most logical explanation is the resurrection actually happened. This is what Orthodox Jew and New Testament scholar Pincus Lapides says. And again, he's a Jew. He's not a Christian. He's a Jew. He says this. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. He doesn't believe in Jesus himself, but he can't deny the proof of the resurrection. So let me ask you, if the tomb wasn't empty... And if they didn't personally witness the physical transformation, the physical resurrection of Jesus, why would they have been so transformed to give their lives for this? They wouldn't have. It doesn't make sense. And we know this to be true because in John's gospel, do you know what Peter does after the death of Jesus? He goes back to his old trade. He goes back to being a fisherman again. Peter has so much faith that on the night of Jesus' death, he, he denies him three times. Then he, because he's confronted by a 16-year-old waitress, and he gets scared, runs away, and then goes back to his old trade, and Jesus finds him there, fishing. And I, I can't imagine what the look on Peter's face would have been like. But he comes out, and Jesus meets him and holds him and restores him back into community. The book of Acts bears witness to the change that the resurrection makes to Peter's life. Because this guy, with all these problems, becomes the first person to preach the resurrected Jesus. The Peter had the least to gain and the most to lose by lying about him. He gave his life for it, but he did it believing there would be a resurrection for him still to come. The birth of the church is credible proof for the resurrection. Now, if you've just heard these three proofs, the empty tomb, the, eyewitness, the disciples' eyewitness, and the... Um, birth of the church, and you thought, Mike, you've skated across this pretty fast. Yeah, I have, man. 15 to 20 minutes. I'm, try- I'm trying to give you a lunchtime. I have skated across it pretty fast. There are more arguments. There are deeper nuances. There are counter-arguments you might have in your mind, but chances are they can be answered. This is a deeply credible event, deeply explainable, but tough to understand. But there is one final last proof The last proof about the resurrection of Jesus is that right now there's around 2.4 billion Christians across the globe. Now, in Australia, most of the time, churches are a bit emptier than they have been. The same in America, England, Canada. Everywhere outside of Europe, though, it's skyrocketing. Faith in Jesus is skyrocketing. Now, if this was the only proof, it'd be nothing, right? It's not the only belief system. It's not the only religion. But from the day that Peter preached about Jesus to now, people have not only been exploring faith in Jesus, they've been dissecting it, breaking it apart, examining it critically and clinically. There is no other belief system that gets this degree of examination, I can promise you. Again, don't take my word for it. Look it up yourself. No other belief system gets this amount of uh, interpretation. The the big question, though, about all this is not about how many Christians there are in the world. That's all very nice. The big question is, is never about proof. It's actually about presence. The big question is, if all this is true, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Because resurrection is not a party trick that Jesus pulled. He was known to pull a few party tricks. Water into wine was a pretty good one. But that wasn't a party trick. He actually came as the forerunner 
of life for you and me. He came to bring resurrection life to you and me. He was the first of what we get to step into at the end of our days, a physical resurrection into a new body in the new heavens and new earth. We don't float off to the clouds to be like angels. If you've always found that hard to believe, join the club. That's not what happens. There is a physical resurrection. So if this is true, do you just go on living life as you were? Or do you have to explore it? Do you actually have to, have to explore this? If it's truly credible, if Jesus rose from the dead, friends, that should totally change our worldview. The same credible disciples who knew Jesus rose from the dead knew that this meant that you and I would someday be physically resurrected from the dead as well. And this deserves your attention. Because saying that's true for you, Mike, but not for me, that's a bit insincere. And saying and, and dismissing the evidence is unscientific. So what are we going to do with the evidence? What do we do? It's just my little challenge for you. Mark Clark puts it this way. You can't sit on the fence about the resurrection. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we must believe and follow him. We have no other options. He defeated death, the one thing that had never been defeated. Now, if this is true, if this is true, again, don't take my word for it. Explore it for yourself. If this is true, don't we have to take that seriously? Don't we have to? I think that's true. If the resurrection is true, Jesus deserves your attention and your worship as the one true God. Uh, band, you guys can come back up. That'd be great. So the evidence points to Jesus' physical resurrection, however implausible that might seem. And it, can I just say, it does seem implausible. Right from, the, right from the word go where I'm saying, Jesus was dead, now he's alive. That's a big statement just to take in, isn't it? But the, the evidence is strong. But Jesus' physical resurrection was intended to give you life, what John, one of the gospel writers, called life in abundance. He came to give you more now, right now. When Jesus departed to be with God, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be the very presence of God within our bodies. And Dr. J.P. Moreland says this, that if there is this much evidence, it's evidence that demands an experience. Normally in our lives, we have an unexplainable experience, and we say, well, I need to gather some evidence just to know that this is actually true. But Moreland says this, if you've gathered all this evidence and you've gone through it, and you've come to the unexplainable conclusion that so many lawyers and theologians and philosophers and atheists have before you, that Jesus truly did rise from the grave, then it is evidence that demands an experience. It's knowledge that demands understanding and action. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.